being cleaned and washed in the Lord is what we're aiming at and hoping for and attempting to live in. I love talking to my brother, who's one of my best friends. He also is a pastor. It's a bit of a family disease for us. One, one time he gave me this gift. It's the Jesus action figure. We had a picture of it. Yeah. And uh, Jesus action figure, before you think I'm, I'm totally off, <laughs> uh, off things, I uh, just want you to see the little description at the bottom right. He has posable arms. He has a gliding action, which means underneath he has wheels, so you can set him on a table. And he doesn't walk, but he just kind of floats along. That's the idea. Um, I actually keep this in my office for several reasons, but the main reason is to remind me of how we can sometimes view Jesus. The idea that, you know, an action figure like this, I don't know if he's much of an action figure, a figure like this is uh, is one that, you know, he's nice and contained, right? And he's not going to move a whole lot. He's not going to disturb things very much. Uh, You can kind of pose his arms and move him along if you want to, and he's controllable. And that's sometimes the way we view Jesus, somebody who uh, doesn't have much of an expression, uh, doesn't have a lot of vitality, certainly uh, doesn't have much intensity in life. That's not the way the Bible describes the person of Jesus. He is anything but those things. He is untamed, and he's not controlled. He is not ours to control. He is powerful. He, he loves deeply, and there's an intensity about Jesus and the way that he interacts with people as he goes through his life and his ministry. He can be grieved and even become angry. What is it, you might ask, that would actually grieve Jesus deeply? What is it that might make him angry? It's not, the Bible says, it's not when somebody might misunderstand his teaching because there's great patience in the way he teaches he doesn't grieve over uh, or get angry over those who aren't ready in a particular moment to, to commit their full life to him. You remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to him with great wealth and lists out all the things that he had done rightly in his life and how God should be pleased with him and welcome him. And uh, Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come and follow me. And what was the response? Was the man wasn't ready to give his full life. And everything that he had over to Jesus, and he walks away sad. That, that did not make Jesus angry. What makes Jesus angry is the same same reason when he stood out over Jerusalem uh, that very first Easter weekend. And he looked out over it, and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Because they, the people who lived there were like sheep without a shepherd. And they weren't opening themselves up to his presence in their life. And it grieved him deeply. Hard-heartedness grieves Jesus deeply. People who might look to God and give God the middle finger. That's hard-heartedness, right? There are also hard hearts in religious groupings, even within churches at times, when people become more concerned with following the rules. I'm just doing everything according to the list. They're more concerned about following the rules that, that we think other people expect of us more than following the ruler. When Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Well, when Jesus te- 
teaches about a kingdom coming, there must be a king of that kingdom, and that is who Jesus is, king of his kingdom, and the king rules in his kingdom. And what we find in our passage in Mark chapter 2 this morning, open your Bibles if you have them, Mark chapter 2 is Jesus is coming into a place where uh, people are needing to know, are they going to follow just the rules of their religious traditions, or are they really going to let Jesus be the ruler of their life? In Mark chapter 2, uh, to set the stage, in Mark 1, we've looked at the last couple of weeks together how Jesus appears on the scene, right? Christmas is done. A little baby Jesus has grown up to become a man. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher, about 30 years old. He enters into his public ministry. He's been baptized. He, he comes and he's out in the wilderness and he's tempted. And then he comes on the scene and his first words are what I've already shared. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, because I am here, the kingdom of God is now near and accessible to you through me. Repent and believe the good news because it is good news. And he goes uh, along the Sea of Galilee and he invites a pair of brothers to come and follow. Andrew and Peter and James and John. And they're on their way. And, and people are beginning to be amazed at the authority that Jesus possesses. And he goes and he'll teach and they're amazed at the, the sense of gravitas that he has when, when he teaches. And they're amazed at the insight he has about God and, and the deep, unusual understanding about life. And they're amazed that he teaches with authority that they've never heard before. And, and then he even comes and, and he exercises and he casts out an unclean spirit out of someone. And, and they stand back even more amazed that not only is he authoritative in his teaching, but he's authoritative, he has power over the very real spiritual forces in the world around. And the people in the first century, we, we must be reminded, I think, in our modern day, because we have a sense, I believe, of historical arrogance and historical elitism. Because we assume that 2,000 years ago, people didn't have the smarts that we have today. Because they might not have had certain technologies that we enjoy today, that they just weren't maybe all that smart. They were easily fooled. They could be captured and easily led astray. They could believe anything. I mean, they're simpletons. And if that's your view of first century people, I think your view is totally skewed. And uh, it's really a, a, a fallacy. Because these people, Jesus emerges on the scene and they begin to really take a hard look at him. They're wanting to know is what, who is this guy who's claiming to be certain things and is doing certain things and is teaching in a different way than we're accustomed to. Who does he think he is? We better keep an eye on him. And that's exactly what they do in chapter 2. They begin to keep a big eye on him. And then criticisms of him begin to emerge. They begin to criticize him. We'll look at some of those. And then they draw a conclusion that Jesus, he's big trouble. He's big trouble and he needs to go. That's the conclusion and we'll get to that in just a minute. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the Bible tells us, in a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was not room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and then digging through it, they lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on, and when 
Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I want you to think about that for a minute. Here's this new teacher on the scene. He's among some familiar people. He's beginning to, to get quite a reputation for the authoritative way that he teaches and speaks, who he thinks himself to be. He's exerting power over spiritual forces. And now he comes and he is saying to a man who is lowered through the ceiling, can you imagine that? <laughs> Somebody being lowered right down here, and Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine somebody in this room standing up and coming up to you and saying, I want you to know I forgive your sins. How would you respond? John, if I walked up to you and said, John, I want you to know that I forgive your sins. What would you think? I hope you would laugh at me. Because <laughs> I don't have, thank you, John. <laughs> I don't have that authority. You know it, right? The people looking at Jesus in this first century Jewish context, they knew that only God and God alone could forgive sins. So this is quite a shocking statement. Who does this Jesus think he is, after all? In verse 6, it says, Now some teachers of the law, they were sitting there, they were thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question. And you know what the answer is? Right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yes. But wait a minute, Jesus is saying that he can forgive sins. That's right. So Jesus thinks he's God? Yes. Jesus is claiming to be God? Yes. That's what makes their criticism of him so real. They're trying to poke holes in his story, holes in what he's teaching, trying to find fault with him, and trying to understand just who he thinks he is. Who can forgive sins but God alone? My answer to that is, exactly. Immediately, Jesus knew in his heart, knew in his spirit, what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's kind of like the ultimate mic drop, right? <laughs> Which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven, or to stand up and walk out after you've been paralyzed. And what does Jesus do? He does both. He's emphasizing that he does indeed have the ability to forgive sin. Criticism number one that they're making of Jesus is that he's blaspheming. He, he's disrespecting uh, God. He's bringing God into a dishonoring position. He's diminishing the role of God as the only one who can forgive sin, and he's equating himself with God. That's why the charge against Jesus, always from the Jewish religious leaders, was one of blasphemy. He's blaspheming, he's dishonoring and disrespecting God. But Jesus' response to that is, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins, get up and go home. 
exit stage left. I remember when I was 13 years old, and for the first time growing up in the church, uh, there was a crystallizing of all that I had been taught about Jesus and my, my place before Him and, and how He wanted to forgive sin and, and how I needed to confess my sin. And I remember sitting in a church, not unlike this one, and leaning down, my knees on the floor, my elbows in the pew, and praying that God would forgive my sin. Praying that what Jesus had done on a cross, that it would count for me. And what we do with our sin, when we realize that we are separated from God, and, and we can't do anything about it, I can't do anything about it. And either I'm stuck and doomed in that condition, never to be with God again, because I can't do anything about it, or God does something about it. When we realize our, our sin that keeps us from God, what God wants us to do is to take it and lay it down at the foot of the cross and to accept what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And when we do that, we, we agree with God and He cleanses us with His forgiveness. And I remember in that moment feeling a literal whiteness over my life and my body. I remember a joy flooding my heart and my inner life like I had never known before. And I remember walking out of that church service knowing that God had grabbed a hold of my life and cleansed me and that Jesus indeed had forgiven my sin. I know that all of our stories are different, but I know that some of you remember that moment in your life when you understood your brokenness before God and your need for His forgiveness. And you came to Jesus and you said, Jesus, I want what you have done on the cross and that your death your perfect life, your death on the cross can substitute for my imperfect life and you can give me forever life what it is to be made do. Criticism number one is that Jesus is disrespecting God. He's dishonoring God. He's blaspheming. And Jesus says, well, it's either true or it's not. And I forgive you your sin. Criticism number two is that Jesus is dishonoring God with his lifestyle. That he's not living a life that's holy. He's not, he's not doing the things that we've become accustomed to a good religious person doing, let alone somebody who wants to be a teacher. And the criticism makes perfect sense through the eyes of somebody who's more concerned about following the rules rather than following the ruler. Do you see the difference? Someone who's more concerned about following the rules, and that's how they look at life, they get upset about these things constantly because they're not intent on following the ruler. Jesus is not holy, some were saying. He's not upholding the traditions that define our community. And the next several passages give, give some different examples of that. Because a good, holy, clean, religious person in their day, they, they knew what it was to keep distance from sinners. The idea was that if I've been purified, and, and if I spend too much time to get too close to people who are far from God... Then, then that sort of stuff rubs off on me, and I become contaminated. I become defiled too. And then I, there's a time that I can't come and be close to God. And here they find Jesus not just calling a detestable tax collector like Levi to come and follow, but then he's over in his house eating with not just Levi, a tax collector, but a whole group of them. I mean, it's getting worse. Jesus has the nerve to spend time with broken people. And he says at the end of that little passage, a well-known idea, he says it's not the healthy who need a doctor. Who needs a doctor? 
Who benefits from a doctor the most? The sick. So Jesus says, if I'm going to come, and if I have the ability to forgive sins, then guess who I need to spend some time with once in a while? Sinners. I need to spend time with people who are far from God, people who are broken in their relationship with God, and people who need the forgiveness that I can bring. There was once a, a bar called the Memphis, a bar where in my 20s I spent a lot of time. Not because I was interested in going in there and drinking, but because I wanted to put myself around people who didn't think much about God. They didn't think very often about God, and when they did think about God, the thoughts were not always great. And I would spend hours every week in the Memphis. And in the Memphis, I, I met people like Bruno and Alexi and Alan and Dominique. And some of them eventually gave their lives to Jesus. They, they understood that Jesus was a forgiver of their life and restore and make their life new and give them a new hope and set them on a new course of life. It was really fantastic. But the whole point of that was to put myself into relationships with people who were really far from God. I think not unlike Jesus hanging out with Levi and his buddies. And I know there would be some church settings where that would not be a welcome idea. There would be some churches where that would be really frowned upon uh, because I've got to find other ways. Maybe there are better ways. But the point is Jesus was not going to allow the expectations of others and, and the rule keeping of others to dominate what he was called to do. He was fussed at for not fasting. He wasn't keeping up with uh, all of the religious rules and expectations of the day. The spiritual things, the fasting, uh, the things often the Pharisees would do twice a week. And when they fasted, the Pharisees often, there weren't very many people who didn't know that they were fasting. Right? Because often it seems that many of them at least would do it so that other people would be impressed at how religious they were rather than seeking the presence of God and a closeness. And Jesus is fussed at because he's not fasting in the same way. He is not keeping Sabbath in the same way. And he gets fussed at for that. And he tells them that the Sabbath was not made for people. People were made for the Sabbath. Uh, other way around. Uh, people were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was given as a gift by God for us so that we can be in a good, uh, healthy, ongoing, growing relationship with the Lord. So what is it that grieves Jesus deeply? What is it when we see him angry? Chapter 3, this is our last passage for this morning. This really is the conclusion of all of these criticisms of all the people looking at Jesus, observing him, watching what he's doing, listening to what he's saying, trying to find reasons to counter, uh, contradict and counteract him. Another time, he, Jesus goes into the synagogue. Chapter 3, verse 1. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill 
Jesus. So their criticisms come, and Jesus responds to all of their criticism, both in word and deed, and their conclusion is Jesus needs to just go away. He just needs to get out. You see, it's hard-heartedness of people that really upsets Jesus. It's really what grieves him deeply. And he wasn't grieved here because people might be threatening his life. Because Jesus' life, the Bible tells us, was never taken from him. Yeah, he was arrested. And yes, he was executed in a common Roman form of execution on a cross. But his life was never taken because his life was given. There's a big difference because that was the reason Jesus came at Christmas. And that was the reason Jesus would teach for these three years. Was so that he could end up in Jerusalem on that first Good Friday. And end up being arrested and crucified. And end up raising from the dead on that first Easter morning. His life was given. He said that no one takes my life from me in John 10. But I lay it down freely of my own accord. And he does it for love of you and me. You see, the people were watching him closely, listening, waiting for opportunities, but Jesus was also looking at their heart. Jesus is also looking at your heart, at my heart. He's looking at our hearts. One of the men that I met at the Memphis bar years ago, I've shared the story, his name is Bruno, and his story resonates with me constantly because he's such a great picture of somebody who really had nothing to do with God to coming to a point of his life of embracing the forgiveness of Jesus. Bruno had been a top ten heavyweight boxer in France at one point of his life. He uh, was hoping to enter into the Olympics in judo of all things. Uh, he was part of the French Special Forces and uh, even gave me a knife once that had notches on the handle and he never would tell me what the notches were for. No matter how often I asked, he would not tell me. But he gave me that knife as a gift. Bruno, he gave me shirts off his back. I, I would compliment him. I said, I really like your shirt. And I did. And he would literally take it off and hand it to me. I said, Bruno, I don't want your shirt. And I realized I had to take it because he was not happy if I wouldn't say it. That happened multiple times. But Bruno, he was the guy in town, town of about 400,000 people that... Uh, the nightclub, the new nightclub was opening. Bruno was the guy you called if you needed a, a good bouncer. Somebody who could control personalities, someone who could control the gate. Uh, I, too many stories. But uh, uh, Bruno had quite a life, and quite a life that he wasn't always proud of. And uh, we began to talk with Bruno, meet another man, and uh, him and several of the other guys. And eventually we saw how the Lord was softening a heart. Moving him from a hardened heart toward the Lord to a softened heart where there was a new openness to the idea that he needed to be forgiven, to the idea that his ability to know God was limited at best, and that apart from Jesus, he would never know the forgiveness that was offered to him. And I remember when he prayed to receive Jesus into his life, and we were preparing a baptism day, and there were several people being baptized, and, and he really captured and understood the idea of baptism. And, what it was picturing, the reality of the Spirit inside. Because we asked him, he said, there was about six people being baptized. Do you have a preference? Do you go first or last or somewhere in the middle? He knew very clearly where he wanted to be baptized. I said, oh, no, no, no. I need to be baptized last. And it was very strong. Unexpectedly so. He said, why? 
Why do you want to be baptized fast? And he said, because when I come up out of that water, it's going to be so dirty with my sin left behind that nobody is going to be able to get back into it. That's a story, a real story of a heart to heart who lived for decades walking away from God, doing anything that seemed to please an impulse, well uh, respected in certain regards for who he was and what he did, but knowing the forgiveness of Jesus, a life that's, that's softened and opened, and a life that's expanded. You know, God is looking at, at Bruno's heart, and he looks at my heart, and he looks at your heart, and he asks sometimes, does your heart become hardened over time? Because it's easy for religious people to get hardened hearts. Maybe easier for us than other people. Our hearts over time, our disappointments, maybe our expectations aren't met. There may be a lot of reasons, but our hearts can become hardened to the Lord. And that is the thing that grieves Jesus the most. Sometimes we can become more interested in keeping the rules and making sure other people keep the rules more than we are in following the ruler. Jesus wants to soften your heart. That's why his words again in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. Come, follow me, Jesus says. As we wrap up this morning, I want to invite you to just let Psalm 139 is going to be on the wall behind me. I want to invite that to just be a prayer response back to God. Uh, knowing that God sees your heart, opening yourself up to allow God to search your heart. Because when you do that, you're you're getting in touch with the Spirit of God as He would do His work in you. You're making available every part of who you are and saying, yes, this is what I want. Not just you touching me, but I want you, Jesus, to be the ruler and leader of my life. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Let me, try me, and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Once again, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Living God, this is our prayer this day and all days, I hope, is that we would continuously open ourselves joyously to you, to let you examine us, to see if there is a hardening or a callousing of our hearts in any way towards you. I have noticed in my own life that when I become hardened toward other people, it's usually a symptom of being hardened. So God, we want to be people who walk with you, who keep in step with your spirit, who allow you to have your way in us, that we're not hardened by a pursuit of the rules and rules only, because that is that is deadening. It is a dead end and life sucking. But when we follow you as a ruler of our life, it is life giving. It is exhilarating. It is freeing and liberating. As you, O forgiver of our sin, as you, O leader 
is you a one who desires to give life, who desires to do good in us and through us. Have your way with us, we pray, this day and all days now. In the name of Jesus, together. Amen. I'd like you to stand. Would you join others in singing this song, this prayer of reflection? Tonight?